Well, good afternoon. I'm Brad Johnson, my wife Judy. Uh, Woolly Farms is our farm name. So this, uh, this class, this time we're talking about embarking on your ag venture. Not sure who invented that term, but I think it's one of the Ad Agri Board's members. So finding ideal property, price, location, climate, soil, zoning, land in the family, buyer rent, if you're leasing, how to do the legal parts. I'm not sure we'll get into too much of that, but certain types, lease agreements, making do with the land you have, infrastructure for efficiency. We'll talk about post-harvest handling and how we set up our systems for propagating, harvesting, washing, packing, and shipping, more or less. So location, the question I was asked is, should we find ideal property? Yes. What price? Within your price range or economics of what you grow or bring, or bring capital from other places or from the momentum of time and money already in your business. Make friends with your neighbors who are getting older with no family or interest. We have acquired property this way and in some cases at the right price, at the, at, for the, at the right time for a good price. So what about location? Close to markets? Yes, but we have shipped on airplanes and ships, so it depends on what you're growing. I think it is important to be close to, more important possibly, close to services. We are close to grading stations, like for grading your fruit, uh, dehydrators, canneries, refrigeration services, all within a closer distance, if you don't have those, or depending on the crop you're growing. So if you have a forklift and a truck and trucking, you can get stuff there. I like being at least near a main trucking route to get the service of trucks to come to our farm and pick up with some kind of turnaround. In other words, a turnaround to get their trucks in and out. Near cities, yes, or towns, people need to eat. But you can cover 100 to 200 miles pretty fast with a vehicle. And good climate, yes, we have good climate in California for a lot of crops. So I'm not sure about climate where you guys, other people might be, but what else is out there besides California? <laughs> oh, okay. I thought we were the only place that grew stuff. Okay. So climate may dictate more of your growing options, or you may want to modify your growing with say hoop houses. We do that somewhat, but not to a large degree. We have stressed the edges in our area and produce pineapple at our place for fun. When analyzing the soil, here's something I would do, if possible. Talk to long-time neighbors. I've lived in the same place all my life and talked to those born as early as 1900 and later. I know about some of the land and weather in my immediate area. Some areas flood. Some don't grow things well. Some excellently. Some soils are better for some crops and others. Prunes, peaches, citrus, walnuts, rice, vegetables, cattle, etc., are not all adapted for the same soil. It can take years to see what takes place. I currently see land for sale near mine that looks great because we have been having dry years and it was planted then. But if we get a prolonged wet spring, whoever buys it without knowing will lose a lot of trees. But also there are some pretty accurate soil maps. I have a piece of property that has an area that doesn't grow things well. And a few years ago, I hired a farm advisor to help me with my irrigation planning. He brought out some soil survey maps made before my time, and they showed that small area of my field having a different soil type. I was amazed at the accuracy at, for such a small area from for long ago. I think this came from maybe the extension office. Yeah, extension office, uh, at least in our area. And they actually have on our wall at our extension office soil profiles. So they've taken chunks of soil and made a map on the wall with actual dirt, blocks of dirt that shows you the profile of that type of soil that names it what it is. So you can have that as a reference. Another thing, 
And another thing we do, if possible, is take a backhoe out and dig various holes to check the soil profile. And yes, do soil analysis and get help with that from someone who knows. The detail of that you can discuss with the experts, but also just walking the fields and observing. I grew up on the same land I'm farming today, so it's difficult to relate to what someone else is looking at. Yours is most likely different. This is an interesting vision Ellen White had when she relates what she, when she was looking for land. Before I visited Kurenbong, the Lord gave me a dream. In my dream, I was taken to land that was for sale in Kurenbong. Several of our brethren had been solicited to visit the land, and I dreamed that as I was walking upon the ground, I came to a neat-cut furrow that had been plowed one quarter of a yard deep and two yards in length. Two of the brethren who had been acquainted with the rich soil of Iowa were standing before this furrow and saying, This is not good land. The soil is not favorable. But one who has often spoken counsel was present also. And he said, False witness has been born of this land. Then he described the properties of the different layers of earth. He explained the science of the soil and said that this land was adapted to the growth of fruit and vegetables and that if well worked, would produce its treasures for the benefit of man. It later turned out to happen as she had dreamed. I find it very interesting that the one who spoke to her explained the science of the soil, the best consultant you could have. But I wonder, I wonder what was said. As I look out here, on this ground out here, I don't know what the soil's like. If I look at it, I think, man, this looks awful sandy. But then you look at the trees it's growing. It must be pretty good in some ways because the trees are huge. So it's got something there. Zoning, yes, check on zoning. I think in our area, 40 acres is the current minimum, but it seems to have all kinds of exceptions. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, though we have, been seen, we have seen property chopped up, and it makes it more difficult for farming because new people move in as, as a nice place to live and complain about the dust, smells, spray, or noise. The Farm Bureau advocates for the right to farm. If you're not acquainted with that, the right to farm in the United States, the right to farm laws in the United States deny nuisance lawsuits against farmers who use accepted and standard farming practices and have been in prior operation even if these practices harm or bother adjacent property owners or the general public. Agricultural nuisances may include noise, odors, visual clutter, and dangerous structures. All 50 states have some form of right to farm law. You can look more of that in Wikipedia, right? The farm law is one place. Probably the best thing is to make friends and educate newcomers about your processes. Land in the family is how many farms are continued, and that is how it has worked for me. But also having someone in that place ahead of you who knows the value of investing in farmland is helpful. My Montana grandpa, my mom, her brother and sister were those and always considered farmland a good investment, and were always on the lookout. My dad has jokingly said, I don't want any more land, just the piece next to me. <laughs> there are a lot of older farmers. The average age, as I understand, are 60 to 65 years old. Maybe some that are looking for someone to educate and bring in. That is perhaps one of the best ways to get started. We watched a neighboring farmer, he had no children, farm his land year after year. We kept in touch, made friends, let him know if he wanted to sell his land, let us know, and eventually he did when he no longer wanted to farm. Sometimes you can get the first right of refusal, meaning it gives you the option to buy the property before it is sold to another buyer. There is a range of how this is implemented, but maybe something available to check into. It has come up in our circles as a way to have the first option to buy. As I drive around or observe from the air, I say there is a lot of land out there. In my area, I can't think of any houses or land that has not changed hands to someone else or the next generation during my time, and it will happen again. Yes? I'm afraid to look anymore right now. I, I, seriously, I haven't, 
I mean, we've heard anywhere from twenty to thirty thousand dollars an acre, maybe, maybe in our area. Yeah, where we were buying land, maybe at back when it was maybe maybe three, four, five, six thousand, seven thousand dollars an acre, maybe to farm. Now, you know, we haven't even looked because it's in our area. We live in a, a rural community that everybody wants to move in and go to the local school. And so all the, it's a residential, people want to move in and have a little place in the country. So it's high price because people don't depend on the farming. A lot of people don't depend on the farming for their income. Right. So we have to price it on our, in our level, at our level, we have to try to price it in terms of what we can afford with what we grow on it. Unless we're bringing capital from something else we already have just sitting around, you know. Some farmers do, you know, they've made it pretty good and they just keep adding to it. Leasing is one of the ways we made transitions from ownership in our family with lease purchases, buying over time as part of an estate plan. I have had 75, 25, or 80, 20 leases on orchards, paying landowner 20 to 25%, depending on who pays what, with usually the landowner paying for capital improvements and water, depending on source. For other leases I have heard of or been involved are cash per acre or percent of the gross with other land care arrangements. I think leases can be all over the board depending on crop, location, and relation to owner. They can be formal or verbal depending on your level of trust. Regarding growing practices, I say, this is maybe a little off the track here, use the tools that make sense. If you are not tied to a set of market rules, this is maybe I got this in the wrong place, I think the judicious use of a wide range of products can be useful, working toward an economical balance course of direction. I think don't worry if what you're doing isn't up to snuff to what you think everybody else is doing. Do the best you can and learn. For planting trees, we have deep rippers and back, a backhoe to make the job easier. Yes. Sure. Yeah, so that would be something you'd have to work out with the owner. Say, for example, if you're if we're leasing a piece of property on a basically if we're leasing at a seventy or or eighty percent, you know, say a, a seventy eighty percent, um, you know, it's a year to year lease. If they own if they've d bought the trees and done all the it's their land, and they're doing capital improvements, that's a year to year. And only if then if we would make an investment, say we're going to put in say some nutrient that's going to be a, a five year. Uh, cost us, you know, say we put five years of nutrients on a, on a piece of ground, say you're going to lime or whatever, I don't know, then we have to just go to the owner and say, look, we need to work out this out if we're going to do this. Because if we're going to invest another five years in this, we need to have some kind of a, uh, a, a way to, to... So when you lease the land that has capital improvements on it, basically you're, you have the right to harvest the crop from that? Yeah, we're, we're doing all the work, harvesting the crop, taking the income, except we're giving them a, that, that 20 to 25 percent of the crop. And, that, and that's negotiable to a certain degree. You know, say it's drying, we dry prunes, they pay percentage of the drying, uh, they buy the water, they buy the trees that go back on the land. If they're going to do replants, they pay for the trees that we plant on the property because that's theirs. It's going to stay with the land, that kind of thing. Because in Oklahoma, I mean, it's just, well, especially where we are, it's just pretty much cattle, right? Where people are like, why would I invest in the land? And a lot of people are replanting, but they're not traditionally cattle farms. So. Yeah. One of the early years, I farmed a piece of ground about six acres and made maybe $2,000 all summer. <clears throat> I don't think that was net. I was probably better off to go get a job in terms of money, and I would have paid for a good disc if I had purchased it ahead of season because the crop protection would have been so much better I had, prepped a, if, had I prepped the ground properly. As it was, you should have seen my early tears, I mean years, of row crop farming because of poor soil prep. The planting shoe sealed the dirt off slick, and the seed roots grew sideways where the planting shoe slicked the dirt, trying to find a way down. So I hadn't read this, but this is kind of what it meant. You know, let, let God's glory be kept ever in view, and if the crop is a failure, 
do not be discouraged. Try again, but remember that you can have no harvest unless the ground is properly prepared for the seed. Failure may be wholly due to neglect on this point. And that was the case for me that year. I shoveled old chicken house manure into and out of a pickup to add fertilizer to my soil. We eventually bought an old 48 Dodge Trump truck to get more, made a bucket on the forklift on the front of a tractor for a front-end loader till we could get a real one. I did not make good friends with some of our neighbors with wet manure hauled in for composting. So a little bit about propagating. I know this is kind of a busy screen, but I was asked to maybe ask a little bit of our propagating systems. So just, just to kind of show you a little bit here, maybe this is familiar to many of you. This is a jumble on the top, but this slide right here, well, let me start over here. This is one way we do it. We just take a dibble, punch our holes in the trays, and put the seed in by hand. And then we move that to our greenhouse. This system is kind of halfway between high production and low. So this, in this tray right here, we've tried to decide what kind of tray to use. We've settled on this one. We started with these. This one here is 48, 128 or, or 98 or 96 cells per tray. This dibble right here, you can't really, this is little wooden dowels. You turn it over, presses holes in the soil for the seed. Then this trough right here holds our seed. This is a little vacuum seeder. So it has little needles all the way along here at different intervals. And you line it up with your seed trays. I, I suck up the, this little pump right here. It has a foot activated a lever. You put that, this goes on the ground and I activate this with my foot. I just suck up uh, seeds out of this trough and, and set it right over these holes and, and then release it and it drops them in. And I just push this tray underneath the, underneath here. As I need another line, I push it underneath and just pick them up, drop them in, pick them up, drop them in. You can automate this with a bigger system and do like, I don't know, 100 trays an hour or something like that. We just do this by hand with this little vacuum tube and this little thing. This is another one you can, you can add uh, different size trays and different needle holes. This one down here is actually a pretty neat deal. We made this uh, jig. So we fill this with dirt, punch our holes. Then we set this jig over the trays. You can see right here. And there's two sliding plates of plexiglass. One with the side on the top of the side of seed you want to plant. And the bottom is a bigger hole. And you offset them. Shake all your seed into the, size, the top hole that you want the seed to go into. And, and then just tip it over and let all the extra seed run off to this side. And then you slide the plexiglass over and it lines up with the bottom hole and drops all the seeds in at once. So you can plant a full tray all at one time. The only thing we don't like about that is with expensive seed, you end up planting a lot of seed. Sometimes you get doubles, maybe triples in there if, you're, if your hole size is not quite right. <clears throat> and then you've got to thin them out. So if you have cheap seed, that works good with tomato. If you can buy seed that's not very expensive. So that's just the way we get seed into the trays. Uh, Blackmore, I think, is that one. Blackmore. I think they make the trays, too, but there's other type of tray companies. This is not a real great slide here to look at, but this is then we what we do for our heating of our greenhouse. We run uh, hot water, th water through these water heaters, a little circulating pump here. This draws the water, cold water in. Basically, we don't draw cold water in once it's heated, but and then it just circulates into out into this one and up to this one and then down to the greenhouse over to here and then we just run we just made a it's a homemade deal we just made some took some drip tape and we we run our hot water through our drip tape and we don't have to get real warm in our area because we're in california and it's not just to keep it where it doesn't freeze or you know springtime this is a double polyfilm uh greenhouse so it, it keeps the heat pretty well and then we just set those trays this doesn't show you very well because this is popcorn we're putting into dry but these are all fruit drying trays. We set them up on this, or we set them right down on the ground. So we can put nine trays on here all at once on these used trays, and we can move our um, trays nine at a time rather than single. If we're going to take them out to the field or we want to move them around the greenhouse, not like you're trying to pick up each one at one time. It takes two people to move nine, but better than, you know, moving one at a time. So that's just kind of a simple, I don't know, I know it's kind of a mess here, but to get your mind on that, but hopefully I explained it okay, I don't know. That just happened to be popcorn. 
we picked, we harvested our popcorn and then we just put it in there to dry because the greenhouse is hot. Our greenhouse is our summer dryer. Yeah, they're, they got the husks on them. It's, it's corn with husks on it. Yeah. Well, it's the popcorn's inside the husk. It's, we've harvested it already. And then we're just letting it, we've got to pull the husk off and, and then shell it. So it's, it's there. It's just underneath the husk. We just set them on the trays in the greenhouse. So now I'm going to, I'm going to talk a little bit about how we handle our material after we, after we um, harvest it. So post-harvest handling, my thinking about this is what happens to the fruit after it's separated from the plant or picked. And how do you get it to the market in good condition or packaged the way it is wanted? So to clarify my qualifications on this topic, I'm not an expert ed educated by the book as a producer handler. These, there, are, there are books, internet, and universities for that. What I'll be showing you is some of what we do and our personal experience of how we handle our products, primarily our vegetable crops. We also harvest sugar plums, dried prunes mechanically, and outsource the drying and pitting, as well as walnut harvest, the hulling and drying and shelling. We handpick or at times machine pick our peaches and ship them to be canned at a commercial canner. But we are daily involved in harvesting, cooling, packing, and shipping our vegetables to wholesale markets. Over the course of years, we have grown for markets, many kinds of fruits and vegetables with many unique needs for handling. The details are too numerous to cover in a few minutes, but here I will try to answer, I'll try to answer questions if you may have as well. Our operation is relatively homemade and much of it has been learned as we go. We have been growing for market various vegetable crops with many varieties within these kinds, melons, watermelon, tomato, eggplant, cucumber, squash, okra, peppers, beets, cabbage, kale, turnips, basil, and a few other miscellaneous types. We have evolved in our knowledge and infrastructure from shade tree to current state. Those of you who have a lot of money, I guess could build it by the book, right the first time. Ours is over time and still not right. I'll be running through photos and speaking to aspects of our operation pertaining to harvest and post-harvest, both being related to this topic. In other words, what do you do to pick the fruit, get it to the market in good, good condition. Uh, something to note in this picture, some of our packaging, we use pre-cuts for corner boards. That's these pre-cut corners. I mean, these pre-cut pre -cut, uh, uh, straps. They're all pre-cut, fit for the size to go around us. I got the thing to tighten it up right away. You don't have to cut it. And then corner boards for holding the, the boxes in. And we use new pallets. And then we use some plastic wrap. I'll talk about the, the brown paper a little bit later. One of my early goals was no carts in the field to increase speed and efficiency of harvest and move product to be cooled and packed faster. Though there are systems for hand-picking fresh market tomatoes without carts, we have not risen to that scale except when we grew determinate varieties. We no longer grow those. We just happen to be picking with carts right now. This is zucchini because this is our first pick through and it wasn't as efficient to use our conveyor belt. <clears throat> we modified our carts for field picking cucumber and tomato with overhead shade covers for the fruit and people similar to our conveyor wagons, meaning adding a top shade cover to the carts for the afternoon sun. These are a few of our cart styles before and after. So you can see we took, we just took these carts. These are some we've just used over the years, different types. We welded stuff on here. We took an old wheelbarrow and we welded a flatbed on that. And then we just put these overhead frames on here and put shade over it so we'd have shade when we pick tomatoes. Like now we have shade in here. We run these carts down through here. And so it helps quite a bit. So our homemade conveyor harvest system, we have designed our field layout with nine rows sections, about 50 feet across, planning to bed, plant, and cultivate three rows at a time and put roads between sections, allowing our conveyors to reach halfway across for picking. Here you can see our roadways between. Maybe a little hard to tell, but here's the road, nine rows, and then there's another road here. We'll show you how we do with that. So this allows us to move product from field to shade quickly and gives the added benefit to shade workers and conveyor with umbrellas or such things. <clears throat> we made this conveyor out of scaffolding from Lowe's, others from aluminum ladders, and another from scrap electrical wire scaffolding. It is powered by hydraulics from the tractor, Tech shield plywood and regular comp roofing cuts the heat on the trailer cover. The conveyor can swing back parallel on trailer for roading. I have now seen these types of manif 
these types manufactured for purchase. So I think they make them commercially now. You can somebody's gotten into building them. We just kind of did our own thing. So more pictures of how this worked. Here we're packing field cucumbers. So we just bring the cucumbers into the wagon. The girl on the right, she's packing them. You can see the boxes. We kind of made a little place to stack the empties and then a little tables on the front so we can pack. And then we'll talk about these wagons later. They're kind of converted from something else. Um, it works well for eggplant, <clears throat> watermelon, zucchini, ambrosia, and short steak tomatoes. We use moist burlap on top to keep the produce covered and hydrated during transport. You can see the but it's kind of piled up there, but on the burlap. I pulled it off so you can see the fruit uh, for the picture. We modified these trailers from obsolete tomato wagons. <clears throat> when sauce tomatoes were the hand harvested in bins, they have roller conveyors and work well for bins and forklift handling. We added top and side, sidewalk way. Though not pertaining to harvest, these provide a very, very good way to stake our tomatoes efficiently. We can put in three rows at a time and pound them in downhill, so to speak. A little hard to see. Uh, these have roller conveyors here. We just put these on the side and added the top so we can slide our boxes in and out for our conveyor system. And then we can use a forklift to unload everything. We load our stakes on the trailer and you, we can walk all the way up and down this sidewalk pounding stakes in on this side and the opposite side and one guy on the back pounding the center row so we can just go down the row and pound our stakes in with uh, three, at a, three at a time. Another style, lower profile, we added collapsible extensions last year for morning or afternoon shade. We still have the other side to install. We did that last year, so this is an old picture. We use this one mostly to pick and field pack zucchini. This is incredibly help, helpful on hot days. It works well for hay rides. We're considering these wagons as an avenue to work in the cool of the night by hanging lights from the conveyor and canopy so we can work nighttime pick. We're accustomed to working at night with other crops, such as when we machine harvested peaches. We would start around 11 p.m. when the heat is out of the fruit and finish the next day around 11 a.m. when the day is beginning to heat up. It is a good way to use the natural cooling of the night to get the heat out. Our days can get over 100 degrees for many days on end, and it is ideally better to get the day's pick done when, while relatively cool, depending on crop and system available. So night harvest is a consideration for us. For certain crops, we use bin carriers and forklifts to move product quickly. This can transport six to seven bins at a time. And many bin carriers can move a lot of product quickly. This is another farm we work for. This is a, those, that's our equipment, but we use that on another ranch. We don't have that in. We sold all that stuff. But don't move your fruit too quickly. <laughs> we like plastic bins, except for being slippery. This style is the best framework for us because pallet jacks will fit underneath this better. This type, microplastic makes these, but th they make one with a high, high center for pallet jacks. So in your cooler, these work the best. If you get the other kind, you can't get your pallet jack underneath them very well. And you can just stack these right up in your cooler. Makes it real nice for you can want them, wet them down or whatever. <clears throat> so this, this hydro cooler is a great system. It allows the heat to get out fast. We've used this when we have larger volumes of produce like melons or eggplant. The bins are stacked inside this and chilled water recirculates over the fruit and cools quickly. So the bins are stacked right in here. The, the water runs down through the bins and back into this tank and then it recirculates back up in and back in again. This is the back side, this is the front side. And then this is just the cooling unit that keeps the water cool. So as it washes through the fruit, it cools it down, gets the heat out. The system this system gives the product a final cool down after hydrocooling or a standalone way to draw heat out. Air is pulled through the box vents to, the, to bring the entire pallet to a desired temperature before storing or shipping. Otherwise, the pallet of boxes can become like a brick and retain the heat. You can't see it very well, but there's a fan right in here. Draws the, draws the cool air out and back into the cooler. You drop these, these uh, tarps over the front and then all the air is forced through the boxes out of the cooler and brings cold air into these boxes then back out and out into the cold box. And then that gets you down to the last few degrees that you need if you want to hold it down to say 35 or 32 or something. Rather than try to get all the field heat out in there, it's better to get the hydrocooler first and then this to bring it down to the last little bit. We also keep produce warmer. Trucks come through at 32 to 36 degrees. 
and we want tomatoes, eggplant, and various things warmer, 50 degrees or so. So we wrap them to keep the cold out. Some companies want a temp tracker so they can see temp fluctuations while en route. So that's what you see on the right. We just attach it to the pallet and it activates and tracks the temperature as it's in the truck. Additional shade charts make an incredible difference to cut heat when we bring product out to load on trucks. <clears throat> we have a high, a large high tensile wire network for additional shading if we need to put up more shade. One major problem is it becomes a big sale and needs to be well fastened. Otherwise, it is a battle to tame when it is windy. Thankfully, we don't get much strong wind in the summer. Shade helps while unloading trailer, trailers as well. We use coolers of various sizes and types. Partly these have evolved over time, but also we need different sizes for volume fluctuations and separate coolers for different temperatures, humidity, and ethylene sensitivity. One is a diesel engine truck cooler. We use this for volume overflow and because we don't have enough electricity. But it can be difficult to use because in, as in and out, because first in is last out. And on very hot days, it needs more airflow as if the truck is moving. The other is a 40-foot freezer box with thick insulation. We can keep this fairly cool just using a small window AC if we don't open the doors often. It is good for storing dried fruit or summer time storage of wax boxes. The one on the small one is our first cooler, a milk van, and it's now retired for storage. We salvaged cooler panels to build our coolers. They were 18 to 20 feet long. This was a great find. This is one of our homemade coolers. I consulted directly with a compressor and condenser manufacturer and built it with what we could. We use the same panels for the roof and doors as well. Mathematically, we do not have enough electricity to build coolers with all the cooling capacity we need. So in order to expand and even do, do as much as we need with these, we need more power. Lacking electricity limits our growth. It's maybe not the only thing, but it definitely is a factor. Jonathan, yes. In a cooler, is there a ratio in your mind between the acre of production that you're trying to do and the square footage of the cooler? Most likely. I don't know what it is. I just know it's we're not we don't have enough, so we haven't been able to grow. So, you know, that's a limiting factor. If you've got to keep your produce cool, you need a big cooling pack, place to cool it. You can't get more power out there? We could. We could. PG&E wanted, just to run a line, they wanted $12,000, and we, we weren't at the point knowing where we're going to go yet, so we decided, well, we put the underground conduit in, six inches, but we decided not to run the line and put it in the system yet. So it's just a matter of where we're going to go, how big we're going to get, if, if at all. And at this point, we're not planning on getting any bigger. So. I guess you don't have to pull it. we got a pole, okay. yeah. Up there? A power pole? Yeah. Yeah. They wanted, wanted $12,000 to go from the pole over to our panel. So we, underground, so we just kind of, we drug our feet for a while and didn't do it yet, so. Oh, it was probably maybe 100 feet, maybe not even that, 75 feet. So, anyway, here's our pack shed. We put this shed up in a hurry because we needed the cover. We built this from salvage material. Telephone poles from the local roadway, plywood fruit bin bottoms from the bin repair discards at the local fruit dryer for walls. We didn't have time to put a roof on right away, so we stretched up a custom-made 7,000-square-foot canvas over the top. As you can see, for us, cover and cooling for post-harvest is a reoccurring theme. But this shed was fairly hot with the canvas top. So we tried various coolers to cool the pack area. This one I did not, did not work well, the one on the right. Uh, but the big cooler, swamp cooler helped a lot. We also put a temp control fans up at the upper end to, to draw the heat out. Eventually, we put a roof on. With this 12 inch of plus of dead airspace, so we left the canvas on, we put the roof on top of the canvas. It is well insulated on top. It is now very nice in the summer. Our evolving plan for a pack shed is one big cooler with product never leaving the pack shed until loaded on a truck. Currently, our produce flow is field to cooler, overnight, then to pack shed, back to cooler, then to truck, or some sequence like that. One of the problems with that, especially with tomato, is the condensation on the fruit when we pull it out of the coolers into the heat to pack. So to minimize that, when we have a big pack day, 
I usually pull all the tomatoes out of the cooler to be packed in the early morning before the day heats up and the temperature is mostly the same. Some other aspects of our post-harvest handling is washing, sorting, getting it into a box, and managing the product's packaging flow. We would like to get all of our packaging up on a second floor level to do all of our box making upstairs and feed our pack lines with some kind of downhill chute with less congestion on the floor. There are a lot of details to this, but some of these machines give us a way to direct flow and sort fruit. We no, well, we'd forklift it up there, just the the pallets, and then and pallet jack from there. We have combined different equipment we've acquired to do that. We have we've just combined a lot of different equipment. This is a water and brush water and brush wash line and sponge dryer right here you see here so it comes through here you've probably seen these got these brushes in here and it's got power washer underneath there it blows off trash and, and mud and then this dries it right here and then moves it on we just married this to the other one so here it is between and then we just move the product onto I'll show you in the next picture I think is coming up how we move to the next one this has a this is a two-sided bin dumper so you can feed this line continuously this will dump and, and this will run, it has a mercury switch that activates this. When the, when the belt gets low, it activates it. And when it gets heavy, it stops it. And then once this bin is empty, the other one dumps, and you can put a new bin on here while this one's going onto the belt. So you have continuous flow with nonstop gaps in your, in your pack line. So here's just, and this is not a real sophisticated pack line. This is just a um, two-way belt. So it runs down this way and it returns on this one. Two parallel belts walk running different directions. They just go in a big circle. And off that, we pack off both sides. So you have a, this girl's packing on this side. We only use one side when we don't have a lot of volume. And so then we just, she packs, and then we, we once it's packed, she's like standing in here. You can't see it there, but the different, and then they just lay them on the, these rollers, and we roll them out here and palletize them. And then we run them onto the cooler. So I just kind of try to make the flow. So, uh, multiple to uh, we run about 55 to 60 in there, between 50 and 60. Do you try to keep a certain humidity as well? We try, we don't. <laughs> my, my humidity system, I'm getting to that a little bit. I'll explain that to you a little bit. So, this is a simple stainless steel dip tank we use for zucchini or other things that need washing. We salvage that from a local cannery. So we use that for our sanitizing dip tank. Um, this is pretty busy. Another piece of equipment we have, this is actually electronic, computer-driven, for high volume. Uh, it was originally made for potatoes. Um, unless you're really interested, I won't go into this too much, but... Um, Do you have other people's products? No. Okay, just well, last, we did one year, but we don't try to. This, the thing I like about this system right here is this one, right? This is the, the pre-sorting machine comes in here, divides into three lanes, and runs the product onto these rural conveyor belts. You can, it turns the fruit as it goes down the conveyor belt. You can see all sides of the fruit. You have exit uh, belt here for number two, and another one for garbage that goes the other way. Just a way to get all your fruit sorted in one pass. And then it moves onto here, drops onto these conveyors, and then drops into bulk uh, boxes here, which weigh, these are scales, each one weighs it out. And then you just put it on your conveyor belt and palletize it from there. This originally made for potatoes. Has a seeing eye, sees all four sides of the fruit as it goes through, so it sees all the bumps and little nicks and whatever, little things on the fruit, and then tells it where to go when it runs down the line. So that's just... There's other kinds we have used over the years. This one's called a cone sizer. If you're looking for some kind of a simple sizer, we've used this for tomatoes primarily, but it's good for round fruit, onions, um, Oranges, citrus, that kind of stuff. So that you dump the if you do, if you're doing manual, you just dump your box on here. It rolls onto this. This turns in a circle. It's shaped like a cone. So the fruit runs to the outside. As it runs around this loop, it's these slots are open at different heights, and the fruit then drops out onto the table. And we just put like two by four with foam pad on here to divide these sections. And as it rolls down here, then we just pack along off this table right here on this side and pack the different sizes into the boxes. And you can, that's just set up because I was selling this unit and I set up so somebody could see it to buy it. 
this kind of shows a chart we use that's on our cooler bar wall. It shows uh, um, ideal temperatures for the fruit, ethylene sensitivity, humidity that it needs to be stored at, and we use this chart to just kind of chart our um, activity, what we need to be doing. Uh, it's it can be relatively important because uh, one time we had a one of our employees put a pallet of ambrosia in with our watermelon, and it uh, made all our watermelon go soft because of the ethylene. <laughs> you can get these online. They're online. You just look it up. You can get these charts. We just pulled it offline, I think. So we lost a whole bunch of watermelon one year because somebody put uh, the wrong melons in with our watermelon. And, and now we know this shows you what kind of, how, how sensitive some fruits are to be stored together. And so it's something to be aware of. Yes? Well, as least amount that we can, obviously. It just depends on the market, you know. I'd say we got we try to move them within a week. Everything out of we rotate. We try to rotate everything. Depends on the crop, you know. But because we've got we're storing, we we put uh, eggplant, watermelon, um, tomatoes. They they might all go pretty well together in the same temperature and same cooler. But it, it's a it's a problem because we don't have enough space. But yeah, probably within a week we try to ship everything. And really, sometimes we're coming right out of the field and putting it on the truck. That's ideal for us, as long as it's cooled down. Usually, one day we cool it, we pack it the next, and we ship it within that same week that we've done that. We try to ship it cold, because a lot of times the trucks will come through and they'll, they'll have a, their instructor drivers to check the temperature of what we're loading there. They want to know that fruit's cold when they load it on the truck. <clears throat> they, they track that temperature all the way through the, the course of the, the, the produce on the road. <clears throat> when they receive it from us, we, and we don't want to be blamed for warm fruit, you know, they'll, they'll tell us, hey, you know, you guys were the ones that made these go bad, you know, so we try to get it chilled, by, chilled overnight and then packed and shipped within a few days. But if the market backs up, then we're backed up. But thankfully, our broker, he seems to have, he, he's, he's in Berkeley, and he has, it seems like he has a seeing eye in our cooler because he seems to get trucks there just about the time we're filled up. And it just, it works like clockwork. I'm just amazed sometimes. I think he sees our cooler. It's amazing. Anyway, some of our various products and packs, some items need water, and we intentionally wet them and pack with wet paper on top and bottom to prevent, to retain moisture such as eggplant, cucumber, squash, beets, kale, and basil. We pack bulk turnips, radish, and beets in perforated plastic bags. You, we use wax, wax boxes for our wet packs. Because I'll go in there with a hose. This is my humidity, uh, Alan, this is my humidi humidi humidifying technique. I'll go in there with a hose sometimes and just wet down my cooler with a hose. And I, one guy told me, just take a big bucket of water and leave, your, leave a water bucket in there to kind of give it some, because it'll, you know, it dries out, definitely dries out. I mean, you you got to keep it wet down. And we, we, we lay burlap on, on some of those bins before we pack to keep, to keep the, the top layer from shriveling or getting, you know, dried out, you know, that kind of stuff. So you don't have a rehumidifier <clears throat> No, we, we need one. We just don't. I haven't done that. Is that why you use all wax yeah. Right. Yeah, and if we're storing tomatoes in there with wax boxes, we ought to wet down. Then you have to be careful. Really, basically, what I do sometimes, I'll just go in and wet the floor. Try to keep if it's got too many things in there and I can't wet, I'll just go in and I'll run the hose on the floor. Um, but it's not the best thing. So this is the post harvest we really want: precious children for eternity, even us older children. How should we teach our children? I say start them young. Tell your children about the miracle working power of God. As they study the great lesson book of nature, God will impress their minds. As the children are told of the work that God does for the seed, they will learn the secret of God's grace. We should so train the youth that they will love to engage in the cultivation of the soil. So far as possible, let the child from his earliest years be placed where this wonderful lesson book shall be open before him, and in all his works learn of the Creator. And this one, I don't know if it applies exactly, Deuteronomy 6-7, And you shall teach them diligently unto your children, 
and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you lie down and when you rise up. These are my grandkids. So this is one of our fields. Uh, we were planting a lot of beneficial flowers. This is a field of watermelon. Uh, how are we doing on time? We got a little more time? What's that? Okay, so do you want to see some of my harvesting operation stuff? I've got, if we have time or questions, we've got a little more time. So this next slide is um, kind of shows a little bit of how we harvest our prunes. And it's uh, kind of a little bit of a video. So this just drives on one side of the tree and the other one drives on the other. Uh, he's taken off the fruit that doesn't come off. So you can see that shakes the tree. Underneath here's a shaker. And he's just taken off what it's not getting. And then the fruit rolls down onto this from this side down to the other one. And then this dumps up onto the conveyor belt. You can see it come up. And it just runs the fruit back through a, a fan. Blows the trash out of the fruit. And we take this in from there. <clears throat> this you can see the shaker weight shaking the tree. So it's just rotating at different speeds. Not if it's done right, no. It can. We've had times we hurt trees, but... <clears throat> yeah, the old trees sometimes will break. But these are, these are fairly old trees. Anyway, that just kind of shows you a little bit of that. So then we, we haul it out with a bin carrier. And so here's the bin carrier load where these are all lined up. We've tried to put them underneath the shade tree. And my daughter's loading, stacking them up to go on a truck. And that's just a picture of the sugar plums hanging on the tree. <clears throat> Uh, this is a walnut harvest. So here we're shaking walnuts. So this just a, you can't see it with this slide very well, but it's shaking the tree. <clears throat> and, and then in front of there, this has, has a little sweeper that sweeps the nuts away from the front wheel so you don't run over the nuts when you drive forward. So that's just a kind of a basic. So that, this is just, and then this comes along behind and it sweeps the nuts into windrows that has a fan that blows it off the tree row and then it just brings them into the middle and into a one row, into one long row. And then this machine comes along and picks them up, blows out the trash and the leaves and puts them into a trailer behind it. Hope you're wearing masks. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty dusty then. And then from there, <clears throat> the guy in the back, that's, that runs independent. So he's the bank out man. He, he's picking up, he's emptying this trailer and, and, and the fruit, the nuts are going into the bank out, and he's just unloading on the run. Has an automatic bumper. You bump into it, and it runs the conveyor and unloads the trailer. So he's just bumping into it and running the same speed as the other one and keeping it up tight until he gets full. And then he brings it out, and he just like a big dump truck. So he'll dump that into the conveyor belt, uh, and the augers will bring the fruit forward. And then once from there, it just goes up the conveyor belt and into the trucks. And so that dumps it in the truck, and then from there, the trucks take it into the where we get it hold. You'll see the next little bit where it gets gets hold. This is my orchard here on the where we were harvesting. This is not my equipment though. I can't afford to buy this stuff at this point anyway. Looks like it quit. Like yeah, it looks like it quit on me. I'm not sure. So this is the huller. So then it gets struck in, dumped into a bottom uh, where it gets conveyed up into the huller. And from there it gets, the holes get taken off, the sticks get taken off, the, the nuts get washed. Any of the, the hollow ones get vacuumed up out of the nuts so there aren't any hollow nuts. And that's a de that takes the sticks off. That, this, this power washes it. And um, then they run into a... Um, you can't really, you won't see the huller because it's all covered up. So just, this is another way to handle a lot of stuff. So the huller's right underneath that silver plate. Takes the holes off. And then that, it runs through uh, next, there's a little vacuum cleaner right there that next, that vacuums them out. The, the, the hollow ones. And then it runs onto another conveyor belt, and we got some gals there that are just, they're picking out anything that's left over that gets missed. 
So then it goes into a dryer. We dry them because they're washed and they're a little bit green and they get dried down to a, I don't know, whatever percentage it is, I don't remember. And, um, and then from there, they just get stored into bulk containers. We, we use bins, or in our case, we just use big bins. And then they go into a cracker where they crack them out, get the meats out. And this just gets the holes out to the field. You just see the full circle of the holing. This is just going back out to the field again. No, no, this is all, that's all, uh, we, we have another farm, they're, they're organic farmers too, uh, Fillmore's in Gridley, and they, um, they're the one that have the huller and the harvesters, and they just, we just pay them to do that for us, so that's what they do. So, that's my wife, big tomatoes, um, that's a, that's a Marvell, if you ever had those, they're delicious. So, anyway. That's kind of some of what we do, if there's any questions about some of that. So the nut has a green hole around it, and it runs it through an abrasive, uh, some kind of abrasive fingers that just rub them all off. They've got little things inside there that just rub the holes off. They're not like grown together. There's a separation between the holes. Well, yeah, what happens is we wait at, at harvest time, we wait till the hole splits. So it's stuck, it's stuck tight to the shell until a certain time, and then it just breaks loose and lets the nut drop out. Okay. And if they aren't all dropped out, like some of those, that's where the holer takes the rest of them off, cuts them, takes them clean. Ideally, we would like to have a rain before harvest, because the rain then loosens the hole and starts it cracking. Some people put on ethanol, which will then prematurely crack Hole, split the hole. They spray a chemical on there and it makes it split so you can harvest your, your walnuts early. And then you have some other ones that naturally split and come off later because so, you, you don't have the capacity to run all those nuts into the holer at the same time. So it's nice to have the harvest spread out. We do, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of our stuff comes from another place um, because Feather River Packaging is not as well acquainted with, with wet products. They use a lot of dry stuff. So we've moved to another packaging supplier like over where they handle a lot more of the wet stuff. And wet stuff would be like greens? Yeah, your, your, your greens. We pack our, um, our cucumbers, our squash. Uh, we, you know, when we were doing um, uh, eggplant, we packed in there for some reason. I don't know why. Uh, no, because broccoli, we bought a bunch of broccoli boxes and we just ended up using those up because we didn't have any. And then, um, so a uh, bunch of beets, that kind of stuff is all wax. Two, well, I mean, I know you're in an area that there's a lot of food growing and stuff like that, but I'm guessing the volume of, of packing material is much less cost. Do you have, are there people that break it down to smaller growers? Well, the the two companies we work for, uh, they'll they'll ship uh, small amounts, especially further packaging. will break down to just a few if you want. And um, generally, the other company we work for, we we pre-order we pre-order everything. If you want to print it, but like if we run out, you can get small amounts. You say, hey, yeah, we ran out. We don't have the name and everything on. Just don't it. So so if you're pre-printing pre-printing your box. They like to have a minimum amount, and if we're just getting generics, so they they usually hold. They have what we call our stock box, so they it's all size and everything, same size as ours, but it just says fruits and vegetables, or whatever on there, and you just put your label on or print it on each box as as you pack it. And we've kind of the reason we like to have it printed because it takes time. So if you're going to stick a label on every box, it takes time. And so you just if you got already printed, you just make it and you go, you know, and you don't have to write stuff on it. Do you just buy for that year or do you buy during the year or do you buy like for five years? We buy for that year and we try to run out and we, we and we and we actually have gotten pretty close. We've we've been running our production of our fields for quite a few years now, how much we get out of per acre and we measure by tenths of an acre on our fields. So we go by tenths of an acre and how much boxes we get out of that on an average 
and we can gauge, once we set up our planning plan for the year, and we got it in, really it's not what we set it up, we try to set up ahead of time, it's usually after we get it planted, we know what we have, because we ran out of transplants or something else happened, and we didn't have quite fill the field like we thought. So we plan ahead, write it all up, order our products, and then we, we generally get pretty close. I usually try to, like to run out of my boxes and move into generics stock box if I can, because I can return those if, I, if I'm not going to use them anymore. They'll take the stock boxes back. Oakland Packaging used to be called Reynolds Packaging, and it, they, they sold to another company, and they, we actually picked stuff out of Sacramento from them. So, yeah, most of what we do, we try to have delivered on a truck to our place, and everything we sell, we try to have taken away on a truck from our place. So we're not driving anywhere. It's really hard. I'm more than looking at all your boxes and the little paper wrappings, like the eggplant, and, you know, like... So we've run out of those sometimes, and we get them at um, Cash and Carry. They're not the same, but they work. But they're a lot more expensive. But yeah, you can buy, yeah, tissue. We got tissue from Rick Arkansinger at uh, Feather River Packaging. So yeah, I mean, you can, I don't know, just a lot, there's a lot of little details to it, but over the years you kind of get with it after a while. So any other questions? Anything people like to, I mean, I could move on and more stuff, but it's. So, um, I might have missed it. I have two questions. The, how many acres are you farming? Um, we farm, my wife and I own and farm organically about 50 to 60 acres, maybe somewhere in there. And then we lease some land that's of our own. We just started leasing some other ground that's not certified about 15 acres. And then I farm, I farm another 80 acres with my brother. So I've got maybe 150 acres maybe that I'm farming. What part of California is this? We were, we, we were in Weedmark for a little while, so we're kind of familiar with that area, but I, I don't know how close we are. So we're just down the hill? West. Of Mountains. Yeah, so we're, we're uh, you know where Yuba City is? Yes, I do. So we're just about 13 miles north of Yuba City on 99. Okay. Highway 99, yeah. Yeah. So um, during this season of your adventure, Yes. What are some lessons that you're learning still? You mean this season? Um, it's like, you know, your overall journey, you know, looking at, I'm sure that you've learned different lessons as you've gone along the way. What's something that, you know, stands out to you now, maybe? Anytime. Another way to, to ask it is if somebody was starting out, what would be the advice that you would give? I know you've got to figure out how you're going to sell what you're going to start, but I would try and do it just in a high, fancy way. I and mean, be, be um, creative to make it work for you. Well, where, where are you going to sell it? Where are you going to sell it? Is, uh, where's your market? And I, I guess in, I started with both. We started growing stuff that we wanted to grow, and we started selling at the same time. But, you know, that meant that you know, as we were, stuff was coming on, I was on the phone, I was running around everywhere trying to sell stuff, you know, and that just, you know, it works, it can work, but um, I would try to find your outlets first. Do you prototype, like, let's say, grow a quarter acre prototype to see where the market is for it, and you'll have a quality of what you can do, and then just scale it up? Well, yeah, a quarter acre is quite a bit. Well, yeah, but most of my ground's in orchards. So maybe to clarify that a little bit, you know, we've gone from 30 to now we only do about five acres. So what you see most a lot of here is is vegetable, but our efficiencies are in are in our orchards because we we do mostly with machines. But our so we do less in row crops because most I'd say 80% of our time is in our vegetable business, and it's probably the least amount of ground we farm. So that takes a lot of time. And maybe, maybe our, our learning experiences as we get older in this realm of our time is we're cutting back on that. And we're moving more to our more efficient 
labor, less labor intensive crops. Yeah, so we're growing, like in term, I've got, I'm putting on some crops, I grow safflower in the summer, if I've got open ground, it doesn't make me any money, but it treats my soil, I'll grow wheat, I've got wheat growing in the winter now on some ground, that really I don't know what to do with it yet, so I'm, I put wheat on it, it doesn't make me much money, but it gives me some, you know, and it helps with the soil. Um, so we're selling those, we go to a commodity broker, and we buy the seed from them, and they buy the wheat from us when it comes off. I hire a local combine guy, comes in and combines the wheat for me. I don't have that equipment. Um, so, but the, you're not making a big lot of money. You need a lot of land for those kind of crops, you know. Um, so really, we're making our, we make a, a lot of net doll, not net, but a lot of gross dollars on the vegetables. It's, it's, it's pretty incredible the amount of money we can make on a piece of ground with, with the vegetable deal. But it also comes with the cost of time and effort to do it. And that's in that's in the organic business. I don't know about I don't know about the conventional because I've if you're competing in the vegetable business in the conventional side, I don't I'm not sure where, where you know we just I'm not involved in that that much. Yeah. Have you been able to maintain a, a debt-free business or, or yeah? To to some degree, I'd say yes, mostly. Now our our custom harvesting business, which my brother and I ran together, you saw some of the equipment there. You know, to buy that kind of equipment, and if you're going to buy land, you know, I like to say I could maybe I could maybe run my business if I'm not buying land. If I have my land, if you have to buy land, I'm not saying I don't know as you can, unless you have a chunk of money to bring with you, right, to buy it right off. Then I think you probably carry some possibly carry some debt. We carry debt with our our custom harvest business uh, because you buy a, a piece of equipment back way back. It might cost you say a hundred to hundred twenty thousand dollars for a piece of equipment. It takes you, you know, five years or more to pay that out. And so you kind of figure that out, you know, and say, well, okay, and then you add to that. And, you know, so it, but in general, yes, I think on our vegetable business, we've tried to run that pretty well, debt-free to do that, yeah. So that helps a lot. If you don't have a lot of debt, but we've, we've, we've lived with debt. And we still have, and it's part of our other part of our business, we still have debt. You know, it's not something we like, but something we have. When we first started our vegetables, we did get an operating loan. Yeah. You put so much expense out in the front until we start getting your harvest. And then eventually we didn't have to do that anymore. Yeah, so, and we found that zucchini was our first, our quickest turnaround. We could put, from seed to harvest, we'd be 50 days. So we'd put the seed in the ground, we'd be picking 50 days later and have some return. And that was pretty quick, but... Anyway, that's... You know, I think one of the things I appreciate about your, your, your systems are, um, Ben Franklin has a quote that says, necessity is the mother of all invention. Yeah. I just really appreciate your... your um, you just make do with what you have. You make it work. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's kind of how we've tried to stay out of debt. <laughs> but like I said on my other presentation, a lot of times we step over a dollar to pick up a dime. So we think we're saving it here, but it's costing us more in the long run. You don't always see that when you're doing it, but when you look back, you think, I would have been better off to do something different. But at the time, you don't quite see it, you know, so. So that income of walnuts, which is pistachios? Well, we don't own the pistachio orchards. We just harvest there. Net income, I don't know the difference because I'm not involved. Pistachios are pretty rich. Yes, yes, it's been a good crop. For you know, I don't. I'd say potassium is probably better. I think so. Um, and there's there's a lot of windows variability in there because you asked me that question, I've got to go. Okay, is that conventional? Is that organic? And what year? <laughs> what price? You know, but but yeah, pistachios I think generally are are probably a more a little better. And I could talk to you a little bit more of that if you need to. We're, we're involved in some pistachio ranches that are pretty incredible. But anyway. So what is the most uh, 
the most income bringing? Uh, gross or net? And which year? It's a thing. But, but you know, in other words, what's left over or what it brings in as an overall? What's left over? We've probably done, I'd say the most, the most we've done on a per acre basis was on, uh, of course, if you, I, I, I'm, I'm, a couple different things. One was basal, but you couldn't calculate that out over an acre. But uh, I would say probably Roma tomatoes is one of our better ones. I'd say one year we, and maybe uh, we might have grossed, well, that's gross, so I couldn't tell you that. Cucumbers. Cucumbers. When we started growing uh, fresh-packed cucumbers, we did really well with those. But what the net is, as an average, I'd say we maybe at some point netted about $8,000, somewhere in there. But the cash flow in that was a lot larger than that. You'd be go, wow, you only got eight out of that? When you think, well, we got 60000 gross and we only took eight? But, you know, that kind of, no, those kind of numbers. I think our, our maybe our, our best gross dollars might have been romance. I, mean, I think I figured we we might have done about ninety thousand on an acre on a group one time on uh, an acre of Roma tomatoes. But another year, last year, we we lost money. So you know which year you want to take. The market the market makes a difference. If you're not getting money for your product, it's going to cost you because you got so much um, so much money to get it in the box. You know if the market. So that's where knowing your cost. You know, if your if your price isn't there, you're just going to be you're going to be spending their money. That's all you're going to be doing. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.